Good morning. I'm going to do something that I don't know if I can get done enough time, but uh, if you brought lunch, that's totally awesome. Okay. If not, you've got lozenges, I got water, I got vitamins if you get low. Uh, we're a good family together, that's all I can say. Believe it or not, just over four months ago, we started a study on the miracle signs in the Gospel of John. That was 5.11, I think it was. We have covered, as an overview, seven signs. And today, we're going to be able to complete the sign miracles. But before we can work through the last sign, we, we will need to do a, a review, believe it or not, to kind of pull everything back up. John has a very specific goal in the signs that he presents. He states clearly in John 20, verses 30 and 31, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written, so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. And again, these signs are there so that we can believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and it's for his glory and to know him as God. Now as a review... I want to repeat the biblical understanding of a miracle. I know we use that term kind of liberally. People use it all over the place. It's a miracle. I brought up in when I was bringing this section, we talked about Mad Max in uh, Princess Bride. And he talked, you know, if, well, will they survive? Will it be a miracle? No, that's not the context. So let me first state that I'm not saying that God is not one who answers prayer. His supernatural work is ongoing today, and we, we see it every single time someone comes to Christ. We see that miraculous work of the change of their life. But theologically, there is a strict definition for miracles. Dr. R.C. Sproul states that clearly a miracle, properly speaking, is an extraordinary work performed by the immediate power of God in the external perceivable world, which is an act against nature that only God can do. Some examples. Resurrections, and the ever-famous that you hear about and go, oh, where was that in the Bible? Floating acts? Consider this way. It seems clear that miracles are not occurring in the present. So the article continues. The first line of evidence for this is the fact that, despite all claims to the contrary, we do not see miracles in the strict sense happening today. Some claim to be resurrecting the dead or causing amputees to grow brand new limbs, but no person making such claims has ever been able to prove the confirmation. Second, and more importantly, Scripture's presentation of the purpose of miracles indicates that they are not occurring in our day. Hebrews 2, 1 through 4 says that the miracles were given to confirm that the message of the gospel was from God. Okay. Now that it is firmly stated in our minds that miracles are very much a sign to point to Christ, to point to who he is as God, and to glorify God, let's go back to the first one. 
Anybody remember the first one? Turning water into wine. I love it. All right, the text that we had was John 2, 1 through 11. I'm not going to repeat any of the text. I'm just going to reference them again. We have the scene that Jesus and his disciples are invited to the wedding of Cana. Remember that? Which is just about two miles away from Nazareth. Mary, the mother of Jesus, is also there. It makes sense. Close communities like that are either interconnected as friends or there's family members there. So being invited to weddings in neighboring cities was a common occurrence. This is a cultural disaster that we noticed that was unfolding. They have run out of wine for the wedding. And most of us go, yeah, 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 okay, let's just go down the store and get some more. Uh, no, not possible. The wedding is a great opportunity for the community to get together, and it's also a huge community event that grows out. And running out of wine now also brings into question whether this groom can actually handle affairs of the family and take care of the wife. That kind of creeps into the thinking. So Mary goes to Jesus for assistance, but Jesus is now on a divine timetable set by his father, and he is to do his father's will now. It's interesting how he, and we talked about how he referred back to his mother. It wasn't disrespectful, it was just creating that division. But again, you think about it, it was normal for Mary to go to Jesus when there's situations that come up. Why? We think by this time that Joseph is dead. So Jesus is now head of family. And it's natural for her and anybody else to come to them and the family to what? Get help. Now you think about it, this is the creator God, and you think every solution that he has is what? The best. So of course she'd naturally come. But Mary did not know what Jesus would do. She just presented the case to him. But you notice, too, very quickly, in the text, she goes to the staff that are dealing with everything that says, whatever he says, do it. So it's kind of like setting it up, said, I don't know what he's going to do, but whatever. So Jesus directs the staff to fill the jars of water, jars of water full to the brim. And what were these jars used for? Ceremonial cleansing. And we're talking about gallons of water. And what was the catch? Again, you're looking at the detail of the text of Scripture. What? It's fill it how far? Half full? All the way to the brim. Okay? And again, keep in mind, these things are not kind of holding old wine. You're just filling it up with water and kind of mixing it up, and now you kind of think it's wine. Nope. These are for the ceremonial cleansing. So Jesus directs them to take it, what is now wine, and take it to the master of the feast to be tested. Now, interesting thing as we looked at this, we noticed one thing that was very clear. Jesus didn't do this in any fanfare. There were any highlights. There was any exclamation. There wasn't any look at me. He just did this miracle out of what? Compassion and kindness for the groomsmen. And also, who were the people that had the full evidence of what occurred? the staff that went and filled them up and then took the ladle or whatever they would use to bring it to the master. And the master said, what? This, he brings the bridegroom over going, you're a little strange, dude. I don't understand you. Normally, what does he say? Normally, you start out with the good stuff and when everyone gets a little bit liquored up, you might say, you start adding water and getting it cheaper and it gets down, down, down. But you, 
bring out the best wine at the end. Well, what is that giving you all the detail of understanding the intensity of this miracle? It's a phenomenal miracle because here it is, water, and now it's the best wine. So who can do this kind of a work? Humans? No. Only God. So again, this is the first miracle that is presented. And again, we talked about the text too, that there's been, if you look at the apocryphal writings, there's some really weird writings, okay? And some of them talk about Jesus was, was playing with his friends as he was growing up, and he was making birds, you know, out of nothing or whatever, and they're flying off, and it, it, that's fake. Scripture says what? This is the first miracle. It's not something that Jesus has been continually doing. It's now the start of the earthly ministry that he's there. Sign two. The healing of the government official's son. The text for that was John 4, 46 through 54. What do we see? We remember this one? We see a father in panic as his son is dying. He travels from Capernaum to Cana. He asks the Lord to come and heal his son. Notice, in that mindset, it was like, you've got to be there to touch and do. And all Jesus says to him is, go. Your son will live. Go. Not, let's go. Go. I'm more interested in watching what this man does because we see this man's faith without any other word, he goes. He doesn't say, well, can I get a little bit of a hint or I need to get some word back. He goes. There's that initiating action of faith. He does return home, and that's interesting. On the father's return trip home, he encounters his servants with the news that his son is recovering. He asks, what time was it? It's exactly the time that Jesus said, go, your son lives. Notice, too, there's something else that's kind of interesting in the text and, and kind of grab onto it. That was the next day. See, it was about 1 o'clock that Jesus had this conversation with him. 1 o'clock from Cana to Capernaum. He can get back home and get verification that his son's alive. And if his son's not alive or his son's still in bad shape, he could come back and get a hold of Jesus and go, no, 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 you've got to come. But guess what? On the way, they say, he's recovering. And the father is just absolutely... Amazed, but what has this guy probably done in the last day? Maybe he's talked to the disciples. Maybe he's had spent, spent some more time in conversation with Jesus to understand who he is, to understand the gospel, to understand the kingdom life. The truth, he responded to when Jesus said to him, to go, your son will live, grows even deeper when we're reading the text, that he himself and all his household believed. It didn't just go to one man. That testimony spread. That was sign two. Sign three. He was a lame man beside the pool. John 5, 1 through 9. Again, consider the scene. Put yourself in the scene. Consider the scene of the pool having a multitude of invalids there 
and waiting for a disturbance of water. Again, picture, you've got lame people, invalids. What do you imagine is going to occur when this water motions? Mass pandemonium is the only thing I can think of. Everyone trying to get to the water, crawling over stationary bodies, shoving, pulling to get into the water first. Some could not even move because they're dependent upon someone else to move them in instantly, but can't get them there. It's just a scene. I just, really? And Jesus' attention is on a specific invalid man. He has been in this condition for 38 years. You remember what I said about age, time, periods, things like that that you need to track? 38 years means this guy's not young. And he's not naturally on his body and, and youthfulness. He's not going to have a natural ability to have restoration of his health. He can't do it on his own. His body can't do it anymore. We kind of attest to that, don't we? As you get older, it's like, this thing doesn't repair quickly, or at all. But again, the more time that you see, this man has been there for maybe 38 years. I mean, yeah, everybody knows this guy. But he can't go anywhere. Jesus knows how long he's been there. And he asks a simple question, and you and I kind of go, uh... Is that the kind of question you ask people like this that are on the ground? Do you want to be healed? Now, I, I, again, I said, this guy did not have a snarky re reply, did he? He just said, I can't unless somebody helps me. In one aspect, here's a man who in all of his efforts, or lack, could not heal himself. Can't get him to the water. But yet, he was still there, maybe for years, and nothing. No matter how hard he tried, nothing. Waiting for man's help, nothing. Looking at the world around him from the ground level. I mean, that, that's just something we don't grasp. So Jesus' question goes to the heart of the matter. The healing of sin. We read in verse 14 that this man has been in the condition because of sin. Now, that's a unique statement. Now, we're not told what the sin was, but the cause was sin. But we cannot go any further than just that statement. But you know that Jesus is working through to help him to understand the issue of sin and the cost of it. Verse 8, with a single statement, Jesus commands the man to get up, take up your bed, and walk. Out of the clear blue nowhere. Verse 9, the man does just that. Gets up, walks. His healing is instantaneous. That's a miracle, okay? It's not gradual. It's not needing rehabilitation. The bones are strengthened, the muscles are built and strengthened, and his balance and ability to walk are complete. No rehab, like just instantly, right that. What do we get out of this miracle? That's the same for those who have not gone to Jesus in healing and salvation. They go through life seeking man's solutions, but yet they are still broken and lost. 
They're stuck to the ground. They try with their mind to deny the truth of the Bible and they stay lost in their life and oh yeah, they think that all is good and they evaluate that and their status and their wealth by those around them, but they're lost. Paul's clear in, in Romans 1 that man has taken the truth about God and knowingly replaced it with a lie. They have replaced God's way with their own. Now sign four. The feeding of the thousands. Again, I want you to just kind of go through these texts. And then, no, you and I have heard these things over and over and over for years, right? But the danger that you and I have with familiar events in Scripture is we kind of, eh, we don't dig. We don't put it deep into our life. We tend to just, yeah, it's an, and, and I kind of agree with Ken Ham. He says, I don't like calling these stories. Why? Because our culture today thinks, oh, it's just story equals fantasy. Just made up words. These aren't stories. These are human events. This is called history. So we have the feeding of the thousands. John 6, 1 through 15. Again, we've got a large crowd following Jesus. But Jesus has compassion on them, knowing that they have a need for hunger, and they're out in the middle of nowhere, okay? It's not even a Starbucks. I mean, these poor people. I mean, what in the world? We think about the, our own life, and we, I don't know if we can even imagine what it is to be out in the middle of nowhere and not take it, but just want to hear from Jesus. You have thousands to feed, and you are away from any large towns, and Jesus turns to Philip. Do you, you ever kind of go, hmm, why Philip? Because he's from that area. If anybody's going to know what he can do to get everybody food, that would be the guy to go to. But now the question is, how's Philip going to respond? That's always my cue. Uh-oh, Jesus asked somebody a question. What's he really asking? What's he really driving to the point to be? So what is the flaw in his thinking, what does Philip do? He surveys the crowd, calculates the number, calculates the amount of bread that would be needed to be purchased, calculates that value, dollar value, and then goes, well, what do we have in the kitty? How much do we got? That is not enough. I mean, we can't even get enough for these people to have a nibble. So what's he do? Nothing. We can't do anything, Jesus. What? Who has been with and seen so many miracles with Jesus and he's come up with, there's nothing that can be done? Jesus is standing right in front of him and he goes, nope, can't do anything. Now, let me get serious. Do we do the same thing? Do we know that Jesus is the creator? Here. Do we act here? Do we know that there is no limit to his care for us, and yet we come away saying there's nothing that can be done? We do the same thing. We look in ourselves, and we see no solution, and then we end it there. Okay, so Philip's out. Move him off stage. Okay? Philip's out. Who do we pull in next? 
Andrew, the guy who brings everything to Jesus, you know? He's like that wonderful dog that just brings everything in from the yard to you. That's just, Andrew is just the one who brings. I love the, the scene where they've got some Gentiles who want to talk to Jesus, and what do they do? Why don't you bring them yourself? No, they bring them to Andrew to bring to Jesus. That's just Andrew's ministry. I mean, he brought Peter, his brother. That's just what he does. So now we got Andrew in the picture. How's he do? Gets a little bit closer. What's he do? Brings the kid with his lunch. Poor kid. He's going, uh, that was my lunch, you know. But you don't think about it. It's what, five probably crackers. Some say loaves, and you think of this nice French loaf, and you're going, mm, mm, not, not, not. And maybe a fish paste, okay? Two fish, let's, whatever. He's closer. He's like, well, we do have food here, but what's he do? He hits the same wall. He makes that wonderful statement that says, with this, what are they for so many? Five barley cakes and two fish. Good point. But wait a minute. You've seen the miracles. Jesus is right in front of you. So then Jesus takes the five barley cakes and the two fish and feeds the multitude. So they are fully satisfied. You notice, till they are full. Again, keep in your mind, God's not going to just kind of take care of you barely. He's going to abundantly care for you. Now, it may not come in an understanding that we would grasp, but he fully does. So the miracle sign is done without fanfare and pageantry. Jesus simply goes to the Father in thankfulness and provides the meal. Who's fully aware of what's going on? Ah, that's what you find it towards the end. And again, the lesson is for the disciples. He instructs his disciples to collect what remains, and the baskets that are filled are one for every apostle. Have you ever gone through that in your own life? And you come back and you go, but I have a basket here. He's provided my needs. And I was so worried. I was so concerned. Again, the evidence is, I love the statement in verse 13, when it said, the fragments from the five barley loaves, that's where we started, five barley loaves, by those who had eaten to the fullest, God provides. Sign five. Walk on water. Text is John six sixteen through 21. And again, this is kind of like right after this event. After feeding the multitude, Jesus sends his disciples away in a boat. Because the reason he's there anyway is to get away because he just finds out that John the Baptist, his cousin, has been beheaded. So he needs time to spend with the Father, but then this crowd hits, and we remember that. While attempting to row across the lake, they encountered a severe storm, which is common in the shallow lakes. There are sudden and intense storms. Remember that these men have already been in the storm with Jesus, which he commanded to be still, but this time... What's missing? Jesus is not there. So that supposed crutch is not there. 
Now Jesus is fully aware. I love that in Mark. Mark points back to it and says, Jesus, while on the mountain, is fully aware uh, that the fact that they are rowing hard against the wind and how long they've been rowing. So he's fully aware of everything that we're going through, everything that's happening. It's not like, oh, could you catch me up a little bit here? No. Jesus totally knows. So Jesus comes to them, what, 3 a.m. in the morning. What's that mean? It's dark. Did you notice 3 a.m. this morning the sun was up? Nope, it was not up. No light. And Jesus came to them. It wasn't like, oh my gosh, i got to find these guys on the lake. Nope. So they panic when they see Jesus. Of course, these are fishermen. They've got a lot of fisherman lore that's going on. It's like, what are we going to do? We know that being in a, in a rowboat removes your power to maneuver and control the boat in a storm. The ability to control is completely removed. It's out of your hands. Has God ever done that to you sometimes where you're just thinking, I've got this, I got this, I got this, and he goes, no. Who are you going to learn to be dependent upon? You can't do it by having a crutch. He'll remove the straps. Sticks these guys in a boat in the middle of a lake in a violent storm, and they've got no options. Row as you may, they didn't get very far. The darkness is another thing. Night removes even the control of navigation. When it hits hard, waves start to break. Now they're battling the elements. Try as they did to row, they make little progress. Their intentions were good, but they could not get to their destination. Sound familiar in our life? Who do you go to? Who do I go to? Do we go straight to Jesus and go, I can't do anything? Now that's the perfect time to say, it got nothing. But you've got it all. So they're alone in the boat and know Jesus. What do they do? Well, what would you do? They should have cried out to Jesus for help, as we should. So the first effort must always, must always be, go to Jesus. Not to your thinking, not to your mind. I do that all the time, and I catch myself at work. Something's going crazy at work. What do I do? Well, I've dealt with these things before. Let me, and I, I kind of catch them, especially when it goes dead zero and you hit the wall. Then it's like, all right, Jesus, you're right. Even in work, I've got to go to you because... You know everything, and you know how to help me through this. And it's amazing when all of a sudden it's like, and he goes, well, let's get a clear sight on this. Let me show you. And all of a sudden he shows you, you go, yeah, okay, gotcha. You know what? These men learn this whole lesson as Jesus helps them to check their faith. Not only the level of the faith, but the source of their faith. Sign six, this is the congenital blindness that was healed. John 9, 1 through 38. At this time, Jesus left the temple. We're not exactly told specific timing. He's encountering a blind man. We learn that this man was blind from birth and what we would call today a congenital condition. It's from birth on. He's too old for a natural healing of the eyes. Or any kind of nerve repair. If this man is ever going to see, it will require a miracle that only God can do. And I'm sure that his parents probably tried for many years to 
get the doctors to do. Do you remember the, the woman who had the great bleed? What was her condition? No better. What did she do? Spent all of her money. She's gotten nowhere. Of course, she looks at Jesus and goes, it's my only hope. It's the only thing I can do. In this healing, Jesus spits on the ground and makes a mud paste. Where other times he's healed the blindness, he's just used spittle. But this time he makes, he works in the ground. Well, that later on in the text causes the issue with the religious leaders because he was working on the Sabbath. Because he made mud. Okay? They didn't give a flying flip about what the guy needed in healing. They didn't care. He broke a rule, a man-made rule. So now with his sight, he's then brought to the Pharisees, poor guy, and they try to get the details out of this man on how he got healed. Hard-hearted Pharisees will not believe that it is Jesus is God, anything but that. So they're looking for any way out and find a way to drag now his parents into the query. They're pretty smart. <laughs> They're like, oh, this is not good. Well, they query the parents. Parents goes, yeah, it's our son, and yeah, he's blind, but how he was restored, we don't know. But he's old enough, ask him. They're out. Why? Because if anybody had any good thing to say about Jesus or supported Jesus or anything at that time period in the synagogue, you would have been dis synagogue, and that's a cultural disaster. So he was kicked out of the synagogue. The guy got bold. I mean, you read the text and you go, man, this, the guy goes, well, do you guys want to follow Jesus too? Because you keep asking. Well, that ticks him off to the max. And they just, you're out, okay? So Jesus heard that he was excommunicated from the synagogue. Jesus finds him. The man moves from Jesus being just the one who healed him to his savior. Jesus now asks a direct question of the man by using the word, you. Do you believe in the Son of Man? The man shows an open heart and a believing heart, and he wants to believe in the Son of Man. He needs to know more about the object of his faith, so he asks, who is it? And Jesus just simply says, it is I. This man does not hesitate or go into debate, but immediately replied, I believe. Full action. Number seven. Lazarus raised from the dead. Notice the position of this one. Notice the uniqueness of what John is doing as he places this before something more critical. John 11, 1 through 45. It's a big section. This is not the first time Jesus raised anyone from the dead. We have two events recorded in Luke. Luke 7, 11, 17. Remember, raised a widow's son? Remember, they were, they were traveling. Jesus was traveling to Nain, to the south. A funeral procession was coming out. Kid's dead, okay? So, it's a funeral. And Jesus had compassion on the, the widow, the mother. And what? Raised him. Right there. Luke 8, 40 through 56. Jairus, remember? Leader of the local synagogue, 12-year-old daughter is dying. Interrupted with that woman who had the bleed. Remember that time period we're looking at? While speaking, 
messengers come to tell the father, don't bother the master. She's dead. Jesus went to the house. Grabbed Peter, James, and John, the girl's parents, got everyone out of the way, all the mourners, told the crowd, she sleeps. They laugh at him, think he's a nutcase. Goes up and raises her. Anybody remember her name? Thank you. Jesus has escaped persecution in Jerusalem, but death of Lazarus of Bethany will bring Jesus back to the hot spot. Remember the timing here? The disciples are concerned, but Jesus must return to raise Lazarus. Lazarus is survived by his two sisters, Mary and Martha. Mary and Martha sent word and Jesus delayed, which kind of gets a little confusing, but we understand what he's doing because this miracle is something only God can do. Mary and Martha's faith is tested, and Martha is aware that there will be a resurrection one day, but Jesus meant no, that that resurrection is today for Lazarus. She doesn't know that yet. And this, again, is a miracle that only God can do by the fact that Lazarus was beyond any natural means of recovery. Four days. I love Martha's response to this. Jesus says, open the tomb. What's Martha say? King James, he stinketh. You know, it's probably the only good time you just, I love King James at that. The tomb's going to open up and it's going to be a smell. It's going to be bad. Jesus says, open it up. And you see, the whole fact is all Jesus does in this miracle is to show his power, who he is. You see what John has done? He's built a full case pointing to the resurrection of Christ. He showed us his power over the elements, his healing power to restore life and limb. He has power to provide the needs of the human creation as he provided food for from little to nothing. And John ends with the case of the resurrection when he raised Lazarus from the dead. You see how this thing's moving? God has the power to raise from the dead, and the resurrection of Jesus shows that he has the power to take away sin onto himself. He is our sacrificial lamb that takes away our sin and restores our relationship to God. Our eighth sign, the resurrection of Jesus. I'd love to spend hours on this one, but we can't. So how is this a sign miracle? John does not declare that this is a sign miracle to glorify Christ or for the disciples to believe. It's true. It's not declared that way. But... This now goes beyond just the disciples, but now to the whole world and to all peoples. Our text is John 21 through 10. This I will read. Now on the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene came to the tomb early while it was still dark and saw that the stone had been taken from the tomb. So she ran and went to Simon Peter and the other disciples and the one Jesus loved and said to them, They have taken the Lord out of the tomb. We do not know where they have laid him. So Peter went out with the other disciples, and they were going toward the tomb. Both of them were running together, but the other disciple outran Peter 
and reached the tomb first and stooped to look in. He saw the linen cloths lying there, but he did not go in. Then Simon Peter came following him and went into the tomb. He saw the linen cloths lying there and the face cloth, which had been on Jesus' head, not lying with the linen cloths, but folded up in a place by itself. Then the other disciple, who had reached the tomb first, also went in, and he saw and believed. For as yet they did not understand the scripture, that he must rise from the dead. Then the disciples went back to their homes. See, the resurrection of Jesus is critical. I read from a blog that was on the Master's Seminary entitled uh, Dealing with the Resurrection of Christ. It says the resurrection of Christ is the centerpiece of the gospel. Without it, Christ's death and the burial would be rendered ineffective and incomplete. Christology would undergo major revisions without resurrection, which would then affect all of Christian theology. You don't have a resurrection we got nothing. Because if Jesus was not raised from the dead, what's our hope? Nothing. Jesus declared that he would be raised from the dead. Matthew 12, 38, 42. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. Sign. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign but no sign will be given to you except the sign of the prophet Jonah. Hmm. Okay. Another one, Matthew 17, 22 and 23. And they were gathering in Galilee, and Jesus said to them, The Son of Man is about to be delivered into the hands of men. They will kill him, and he will be raised on the third day, resurrection. And they were greatly distressed. John 2, 18 through 22. So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. They thought he was talking about what? The temple, the building. He was talking about himself. The Old Testament also declared that there would be a resurrection, not only of God's people, but of the Messiah, the Redeemer. There's a lot of texts, and I didn't want to spend all morning going through them. There's a lot of structure you have to go through. But as reference, Psalm 16.10, For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. David saw a resurrection and trusted God to not let him to be left in the realm of the dead. So David saw a resurrection. Isaiah 6, 1 and 2, interesting text because you think it's literally kind of divorced from the idea of resurrection, but it literally is because it comes back and it talks about the nation of Israel and after God gets done dealing with them and their sin and their rebellion, there will be an absolute restoration. Beautiful text. Isaiah 6, 1 and 2. Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will build us up. After two days, he will revive us. On the third day, he will raise us up, that we may live before him. 
After God completes the judgment of Israel, he restores them through the sacrifice of the Messiah and his resurrection from the dead. It is a resurrection of the Messiah and his people. It is a forward-looking to the cross from Hosea. You know, signs that we have today to kind of help us, not the same thing identical as the miraculous signs, but these are things to help us. What's the first one? Baptism. It represents the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus in the redeemed life of the believer. We are dead to sin and then are raised to newness of life. Have you noticed that and have you heard that terminology? That we are dead. And again, sign language is beautiful because sign says we are dead. That's under the water. That's the symbol. And raised to newness of life. To live anew. What's another one? That which we get all of us here to celebrate tonight. Communion. As Jesus said on the night before he was betrayed during the last Passover meal, do this in remembrance of me. What? Remember my life lived without sin and my substitutionary death on the cross, the acceptance of my payment of sin before the Father and his acceptance of that payment by the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. That's what we're pulling in. We're pulling in the body and the blood. And in the blood there is what? The scripture is always very clear that life is in the blood. And believe it or not, what we're doing today is the third one. Sunday worship. Some may go, oh, yeah. Sunday, the first day of the week, is the day we celebrate each week the resurrection of Jesus from the dead. We celebrate his victory over sin and the, and the propitiation of our sin on him. The miracle signs have been presented to glorify Christ and to bring us to the point of belief. There is more than enough evidence. The critics continually work hard to destroy the miracles and especially the resurrection. If there is no resurrection, there is no Christianity. But there's way too much information and evidence on the resurrection. You know the most beautiful thing about the glorifying Christ and everything that people will believe? Who was the first person to acknowledge at the cross that he was the Son of God? Roman centurion, a Greek wasn't one of our Christian brothers. See, the evidence was there. John is clear as he presents the sign miracles that these glorify Christ and cause us to believe. There are many more that are recorded in the Bible and more that can be contained in the books of the Bible. That's what he says in John 20. I mean, there's tons more if you need it, but (laughs) I think we've got plenty. The evidence is clear. What excuse do you have now? The evidence has been given and it is clear and convincing that what will you do with it and will you come all the way to Christ surrendering your whole life and obey him? Or will you turn to your own way? There's no way to eternal life in heaven except through Jesus Christ and him alone. You have the proof. What will you do with it? Let's pray. Father, I think of you know, books written years ago that said this evidence demands the verdict that you are God. 
And you did come. And you did pay. Father, that we never, ever, ever look at the scriptures and just take it as a story. These are evidences that are presented before us to help us to grow, to help us to mature, and help us to believe. And all of it is that we return glory to Christ and return and honor Him for all things. God, melt our hearts of anything that might be just ordinary thinking and come back to the point of realizing that you care for us and you've proved and shown us all the evidence needed. The real reality is whether or not we will totally come to you and trust you for all things. Not questioning you, but trusting you. We can't see the whole deal and you know everything for us. God grant us understanding of areas of weakness, cause us to move to you and trust you and rely on you. And we know we love you. And we thank you for your constant care for us. God, grow us up as men and women in the word and in trusting you. Help us to be who we should be. Help us to proclaim the truth to all around us. In Jesus' name. Amen.